this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Speaking of the union, Jay, they helped us select this episode. We started with a list of possible roundtable subjects that got whittled down by our board of directors. Then we put it out to the patron community to vote for an origins episode, but instead of doing an origins episode like we've done in the past, where we take a 2000s band that started in the 90s, we decided to take a 90s band that was successful and go back to their 80s origins when they were less known. And the three picks were Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, and our winner, Soundgarden. So Jay, have you heard of this band called Soundgarden? 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 Uh, yes. And I, I think we could also call this episode Soundgarden in the 80s. Yes. This episode is officially titled Soundgarden in the 80s so that we tap into both the Soundgarden fan base and people who are fans of 80s music. It's a synergetic title right there. So we have a whole bunch of folks who want to talk about Soundgarden in the 80s. They're really into the FOP dub remix and they want to share their love of that. We also have, we're about to have battling CD displays once Johnny Hooper's uh, video connects here. Oh, man. Him and, him and Kyle Bittner have got two of the more impressive uh, CD racks that we've seen. So uh, going around, there he is. Oh, and he went the extra mile of putting up the Bad Motor Finger vinyl release on his display section. Special edition, baby. There you go. <laughs> it's so shiny. Yeah. It is. Hold on. Make it spin. Yeah, let's make it spin. For you, for those listening at home, uh, <laughs> this is not entertaining. No. But for those who are watching the video feed, which you get to see at Patreon, uh, because we're making amazing television here. There um, it is. He just launched... This, the album cover, uh, which now has turned into a very deadly blade, uh, akin to a um, circular saw, and uh, you can actually use this uh, album to cut wood. <laughs> you are getting that. very sleepy now. <laughs> you are a cheeseburger. <laughs> so let's let's uh, welcome the folks. Some who have been here before, some who have not. Uh, welcoming back, Mr. Phil Fleming. Welcome, Phil. Hello. Uh, Rudy Stowell, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Johnny Hooper, welcome back. Cheers, boys. Sean Brown, for the first time, joining us. Uh, hey, everybody. And Kyle Bittner. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you. Glad to be here. Be between the two of you, I think you have all the CDs. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. A, that's an impressive collection of, uh, of CDs between the two of you. I wonder if there's any overlap at all. 
<laughs> Hopefully they both own some Soundgarden CDs. I would hope so. There's always overlap. So I do not own that uh, Nirvana box set that I see up there, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, tasty. Don't forget about the in utero. Oh, uh, look at that. Anniversary edition. That's mm. wicked, too. Nice. So many pretty things. So many. Mm. So let's go around the room. Um, everybody has an introduction point with this band that might be, you know, slightly different. Um, when they discovered them, when they first heard them, which video they saw on, on Headbangers Ball uh, at a certain time. So let me start with you, Rudy. When did you first discover Soundgarden? Uh, back in the 80s, uh, I'm a building contractor, and we were always listening to music on site. We'd trade tapes around, and the first tape I heard was Ultra Mega OK, uh, Flower, which is still one of my favorite songs ever. Um, I still listen to it when I work out. I mean, it's just one of the best songs ever. And, uh, you know, being here on the coast of California, they kind of came down through. They came right past us to go down and play in L.A. And it was just it was exciting. It reminded me of uh, reminded me of punk when punk hit. And it was just so exciting and brand new and raw and just amazing music. And Soundgarden, they remain my favorite band to this day. Wow. So you were on early. That's cool. That's much later than me. Uh, Sean, what about you? When did you first discover Soundgarden? Um, I'm one of those uh, little Seattle club kids. Um, so I can, I can with big confidence say like I was there at the Central Tavern uh, as a eighth grade and, and freshman in high school. My big brother would take me and we saw some of those, those shows. Um, at that point, they were, you know, fairly established um you know certainly in seattle but they you know they were just getting out there right around that time um i think that a&m record came out in 89 right um, yeah. so um but like i was just one of those little kids um so it was made a big impression obviously and it still still rings true to this day how big were the the how big is that venue that you're talking about oh like how many- friggin' tiny like a bar uh, the Central Tavern is like one of those like uh, now storied Seattle uh, venues where where everybody was playing. It's a little teeny tiny that you probably couldn't get two hundred people in there at, at the most. Wow, yeah, that had to be loud. <laughs> uh, it was super <laughs> crazy loud. Yeah, mm-hmm. Phil, what about you? When did you first uh, get hip to Soundgarden? Oh uh, well. Being on the complete opposite coast as as Sean, um, for me it was seeing the Rusty Cage video on MTV, um, and I, I I forget it, I forget if Outshined came before or after it, but uh, but yeah, it was the it was the Rusty Cage video. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really really sold me when Super Unknown was released. Um, at the, at that point, it was just that, that big head of steam that was, you know, with, between Bad Motorfinger and the, and the song on the single soundtrack, it was just, it just built up to that in which, you know, everybody at that point had heard of Soundgarden by, by 94. Right. So, yeah. I, I was, I was one of those mainstream ones. 
Yeah, but, well, no, I, I don't think, I, I don't know about Jay, but it, it was Rusty Cage for me. I remember seeing the video for the first time, just being like, what, what is this? Like, I had not heard anything like that before. Jay, what about you? When do you, when do you yeah, remember them? My memory was uh, Outshined. I think that was the first single or the first video, because I remember, um, obviously, Nirvana was hitting big at the time. So my perception of like what alternative or grunge was going to be was in that mold. So when I saw Outshine and I could immediately connect with how heavy it was and it kind of, I was in tune from like my metal background to be able to like get into it and also could kind of sense some of the, not only is him being like a very different singer than Kurt Cobain, but also just there was a, I guess, a polish or musicianship to it that really struck me. So I'll shine for sure. And then I saw the video for Rusty Cage shortly after and my head was twisted. Like, what is going on? How is this a song? <laughs> like, but, but yeah, well, the, was, the, the jump cuts in that video certainly did not hurt. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but that riff is just so unorthodox and unlike yeah. anything I'd ever heard to that point. It was kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Kyle, what about you? Where's your entry point with Soundgarden? Uh, so I was in high school when sort of Soundgarden started to uh, make their their name known around the um, bad motor figure time. And I think I I remember hearing Heretic on uh, on the pump up the volume soundtrack and just being all over that song and loving it um, and that soundtrack as a whole. And then kind of like the rest of you, I started seeing Rusty Cage, Jesus Christ pose on uh, much music up here in Canada and um, just being blown away by how amazing it really was and how different it sounded from a lot of the other bands that were sort of around at that time. So. And last, Mr. Hooper, when were you feeling Minnesota, so to speak? This is obscure. So stay with me. Okay. In 1990, there's a film called Pacific Heights with Michael Keaton and Melanie Griffith. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Modine as well. And in the film, Michael Keaton is like the tenant from hell and he's tormenting poor Matthew Modine and uh, Melanie Griffith uh, to the point where Matthew Modine has been hideously injured and is laid up on a sofa for days on end. Uh, one of those days that he's on the sofa, he's watching MTV in his delusional state. He's watching the hands all over video from Soundgarden and that was literally my entry point. I was so taken by the song that's being played in this obscure film. And that was my entry point into Soundgarden. 1990 wow. film Pacific wow. It's funny that the Pump Up the Volume soundtrack came up. I remember seeing that movie and I remember getting that soundtrack not long after, but I completely forgot that there was a Soundgarden song on there. I, re I relate them with the single soundtrack with Birth Ritual. Yeah, um, yeah. that's awesome too. Yes, that's one of my favorite what, uh, Soundgarden tracks. I mean, yeah, I, I, I saw the Rusty Cage video, but hearing Birth Ritual was what really turned me on to Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. um, that and the and the solo song that he has on the single soundtrack, Seasons, was was incredible. Yes. Um, and and little did I know that it, he was basically a consultant on singles for a lot of and responsible for getting a lot of the local color uh, in that film. 
So the local color being Eddie Vedder like, and Jeff Ament and yeah, getting getting all of his musician friends in there and and like getting getting clearances to shoot in clubs and things like that. Gotcha. Uh, so let's not, get not to mention the cameo, the greatest cameo in movie history. Oh, oh, the the the, the standing there while the <laughs> windows blow on the car. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, let's get into the discography here. We're going to talk about Soundgarden in the 80s. We need to talk about Soundgarden in the 80s. Um, so chronologically speaking, their first release was the uh, Hunted Down, Nothing to Say, Sub Pop single that came out. And then the same year is the Screaming Life EP, which includes those two songs, um, plus a handful of others. So I want to get your guys' opinion um, going back and, and listening to that release. I think the, the thing that I was looking for is, you know, where this band started with a slightly different lineup. We have to mention that um, Ben Shepard, the bass player, was not in the band at that time. It was Hiro Yamamoto, Rudy. Wow. <laughs> Anytime anybody points out that I might have a problem, I always go and practice ahead of time <laughs> with the with the pronunciations. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Matt Cameron on drums, who's been the uh, longtime drummer, and Chris Cornell. And I believe it's pronounced Kim Thale. Is that wrong? Oh, you're you're correct. Okay. There we go. See. <laughs> so, and this was a lot of people by, try to say Thay Hill, and it's fail. Yeah, and I, um, I know that because I asked him directly back in 1990, and he told me how to pronounce it. Oh, okay. I, well, you got I it didn't right from... think that was going to be much of an issue. I mean, you look at it and you kind of <laughs> always say I... Bay Hill. No, we they they hung out a little bit. It's after a Brett Favre situation, like, you know, is what it is. Okay. Um, and this is pretty much this is like an a a a, a combination of all Seattle coming together you have the photographies by Charles Charles Peterson on the cover who did amazing photography throughout that era um it was produced by Jack and Dino of course who was like the guy at Sub Pop who was doing all the production um it came out on Sub Pop so this is this is a Sub Pop you know to the core this this release so let's go around the room and actually talk about this release um in terms of are there inklings of what Soundgarden in the 90s was going to become? Can you hear that in this release, in, in these six songs from the CP? I would pretty much say an emphatic no. Um, 
to me, it's it sounded it sounded like you know definitive sub pop in in the mid to late '80s because it because I I couldn't help but think of their 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 you know peers. That's the word I was looking for. Peers like um, Green River and and Skin Yard and and things of that nature. And it was very of for me to my ears. It was very of its time in Seattle in 1987. I could, I mean, the, the other people around the horn could vehemently disagree, but <laughs> let's go. Yeah. That, let's go around the horn. About, that's it. That's uh, what I, that's, that's what I hear. Thoughts on uh, whether you hear some of the, the, the uh, youthful uh, sound garden turning into the, the nineties juggernaut. Anyone have any, Disagreement of that. Here's some something in the playing or in the in the songwriting. Well, musically, I found that "Hunted Down" was probably the closest that they came on that EP to sounding like the future Soundgarden that um, you know of the '90s. Um, but I, it's still it's still way more metal than than the stuff that they put out in the '90s was. Um, but it still has that Black Sabbath tuned down riff to it. Um, that was really the only song that I actually found sounded like it. And going back, I actually listened to the live version as well from at the artist den. And, uh, it sounded a little bit similar, but they sped it up a little bit more. And obviously Chris Cornell had, you know, been able to, by that point, tone his vocals a little bit better. Um, so it, it was a much cleaner sounding version on the artist den than it is off of the screaming life album. But uh, that's the one where I actually, I, st- I hear Soundgarden as we know them today. Who else wanted you can to definitely, You can definitely hear Mac Cameron, I think, punches through on that. Like his style is, is um, very um, unique and you can kind of hear him um, almost sounding like, uh, you know, the mature drummer that he became, you know, obviously we know him as in the 90s, but also now like, his playing and chops and feel is nearly identical. I think what's missing is well, the songs are missing. Chris Cornell, like you can tell is not quite sure how to, what he wants to do vocally. There's some moments where like, okay, that makes sense. And there's other moments where he's like shrieking or it's just sounding like a generic, like sub pop alternative rock singer from the late eighties. Probably the thing that's also missing for me is just, guitar wise, like you said, Kyle, like you can hear it on hunted down. Like that sounds like a sound garden riff, but a lot of the other stuff, it's just inconsistent in terms of guitar wise, what they're going to do. Um, and that obviously becomes a huge part of the band, not, not just Kim Thale, but how they play together is a huge aspect of, of what they continue to refine over time and really what defines the sound. And then just like some goofy material on here. Um, that, you know, they don't do ever again. <laughs> um, I, I can hear also some other influences other than Sabbath, like a band like Voivod to me popped is maybe like something that they would be into on a song like Tears to Forget. Um, just, a you know, there's like a weird alternative metal band from the 80s and 90s that I could imagine them be kind of being into. Um, and that comes through a little bit for me on this on the CP. I actually heard on Tears to Forget, now that you're mentioning that, uh, almost like a venom black metal quality to it. Mm. Uh, 
you know, and listening to it, I hadn't pulled this, this EP out in years. Um, so listening to it now, I was, I was a little bit thrown off by, by some of the vocals on it and how screechy they actually became. Yeah. When I, first time I saw them, they were actually opening for Voivod. The bill was Prong, Soundgarden, oh, and Voivod. Yeah. And Prong huh. dominated, Soundgarden was life-changing, and then Voivod, we all went and got more beers and left. <laughs> I think Voivod's a band for metal music musicians. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking um, in, the, in the time frame, like, it, it wasn't very long ago at the time that they made this, that, I mean, Chris had even stood up from the drums. Like, so, you know, in the, in the, the progression of things, this is early, you know, obviously early, but even early in that sort of configuration of the band that, that Matt Cameron was pretty new. Chris, Chris Cornell had been the drummer. Um, so it's, yeah, just in hearing a lot of what, what y'all are kind of pointing out, it's like, yeah, they're, they're like fresh at the beginning uh and sort of making a lot of noise um i remember when this came out though people just thought they were martians like because it, <laughs> they, it people really didn't know what to make of the actual recording um even even the people that knew them pretty well as like a club act and like had been seeing them in town the this recording specifically sort of was a head scratcher for people like people were really into it but it it was people were unsure like the live band sounded this way, but this, this was tricky. It was kind of a, a tricky leap um, as a sort of a first effort. Do you uh, think it had something to do with Endino's production? I mean, he was producing everybody. Yeah. Uh, so I it, it sort of, I don't know if it helps or hurts. Sean, do you, do you think they were ever able to capture on tape what they were like live? No. Or get close to it? I mean, that... No. I've, I've seen a hundred bands, a thousand, how many bands I've never been. It's like Godzilla's in the room when they played, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It wasn't just volume. It wasn't just crap. There's just something about those four guys that put out a sound. It it's, it was, un, I have never, never ever experienced anything else like that. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. It, I mean, for me, the, the record that I always loved the most was, was bad motor finger for obvious reasons. Yep. Um, and it was the closest for me to all of that sort of happening, but I, the, the sort of frenetic noise of them live coupled with all the great playing and everything. It was just, I don't, I don't know how you get in a studio and make that happen on tape yeah. and they never did. Yeah. No, I totally. Agree. I agree. Um, so this was released in, uh, looks like fall of 87, October of 87. And then they would follow this up. Actually, the next release was the FOP EP. Came out in August of 88 before Ultra Mega OK, which comes out in, in October of 88. So let's let's touch on this a little bit. Because, Jay, you mentioned about them doing some stuff on Screaming Life that they would not do again. Um, some, I guess you'd say, some experimental or... or if you want to say goofy things, um, they also tackle that on on the FOP EP. Um, let me let me qualify. I I listen to these together. I don't listen to them separate. So I was commenting on this whole collection. Yeah, so, oh, so gotcha. did I. <laughs> so did I. I I mean, yeah. They I listened to the compilation. Yep. Essentially, 
Um, cause, it, cause when everybody became aware of Soundgarden, basically the turning point was when they got nominated for a Grammy for ultra mega. Okay. And that's when sub pop, they had signed A&M and, and uh, things were starting to really happen. So Sub Pop really just kicked everything into gear in 90 and released the compilation. That That's the most common available document of that time. So here's the thing I didn't know going into this uh, when I was you know researching. FOP is a cover of an Ohio Players song. Uh, okay. And... I just thought it was them screwing around. I didn't, I never realized that. Uh, I don't know why they felt the need to do a dub mix. Uh, other than they, you know, yeah. wanted to mess around. Um, and then you have a, a song that Chris Cornell wrote, Kingdom of Come, and then a cover of Swallow My Pride by Green River. Green River. Uh, which ties it into the whole, obviously, um, scene there. Uh, you know, it's what's interesting is you don't see this now as often, but it used to be, I mean, even going back into the 60s, bands would cover their contemporaries. You think about like Jimi Hendrix covering Bob Dylan or or um, other artists that would do contemporary covers Um uh, you know, even bands that they were in the same scene with. Um, so it's, and it, 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 you know, they're not goofing around. Like they're doing a pretty straightforward cover of that song. In some ways you might like it better. Cause you might like Chris Cornell better as a singer than, than Mark arm. Uh, as we've covered well, mud honey on this, uh, on this yeah, record, well, on this podcast. Well, it, during, for that whole era, you know, the screaming life and the foppy Pete, what really, st- st- uh, separated Soundgarden from their peers, like in Skin Yard and, and Green River, and later Mud Honey, was Chris Cornell's voice. With that early sub pop material, that was what stood out. Because, I mean, Chris Cornell had that had that super high squeaky falsetto that none of the other bands had. Um, I think I think that was what. That was the thing that, that really that probably got them their initial notoriety in, in the Seattle scene. Yeah, that's true. So let me ask you guys, are the Screaming Life and FOP EPs essential for understanding Soundgarden? Or do you would you recommend people start with Ultra Mega OK? OK, I'll start. Um, I I, I will say I would start with Ultra Mega OK Um, because because I I thought that 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 particular album would had a lot of the elements that that the Soundgarden that everybody knows after 1991 they would be able to identify with that with that I think their value is probably more in the story of their relationship to Seattle, because I think you see, you hear, it sounds similar to other Seattle bands. You've got the Jack and Dino piece of it. It has a bit 
of a sense of humor to it too, which none of their other material after this has. And that's very much, it feels like, like kind of the spirit of the bands and the, you know, culture and personality wasn't always so serious. You know, it's, um, a good, having a good sense of humor was, you know, part of it. It just didn't always come across on all the band's music. Um, so I think it's interesting from that standpoint, but it doesn't give you a good clear idea of what the hell this band is going to do. Um, I agree with Phil on that. Yeah, I would say, I would say it's a, it's a bit of an artifact. Um, although I, I don't think anybody's pointed out that, that FOP was, was produced by Steve Fisk, um, which is no really notable, uh, especially in the scene. Steve Fisk is, is that, obviously legendary. Thus the dub remix. I was going to ask if is. he did it. If, That's it. If yeah. He did it. Uh, Connect the dots. Yeah. 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 Um, it's all making sense now. And like also explains that it is a little silly, uh, and a little bit right. lighthearted. Um, so that, that all sort of makes sense in an insular way, but from like, a Hey, how do I wrap my head around this band? I, it's probably a little baffling. So especially to start there. Well, and, and through these eighties uh, releases, I think that there's some stuff that they throw on where you're, you kind of wrapping your head around what am I tearing on this, not necessarily always musically, but sometimes lyrically, some of the choices I'm, uh, we'll get to it, but there's some, there's some odd things going on, but let's get into, um, the October 88 release, the debut album, ultra mega. Okay. Uh, was released on SST, not Soundgarden, or not uh, sub pop. And, um, which of course SST is, you know, by 1988, it's a legendary label at this point. They've released Minutemen and Husker Husker Du and Meat Puppets and Sonic Youth and a ton of influential uh, artists. Does anybody know why they switched from Sub Pop to SST for this yeah, release? Sub Pop ran out of money. They Sub Pop had no cash. Yeah. Pretty much up until Nirvana got signed, they were scrapping pennies together to release records. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. And SST had the distribution channels. Well, that's probably how on the West Coast, they're a West Coast label, right? Yes. So that's how Rudy got the tape was because they probably had good distribution on the West Coast. Yeah. SST was started with Greg Jinn from Black Flag. That was his... Yeah. Label. Yep. It stands for solid state transistors. Solid state transistors is what SSD stands for because it used to do radio parts on the side. But yeah, there's a black flag tie-in there for sure, and it was definitely it was definitely a West Coast thing in the late '80s, very West Coast. But well, Screaming Trees were on there at the same time too. Yep. With that, the buzz yeah. yeah, Screaming Trees' first record was on SST. Okay, so. Rudy, I want to ask you, you, you said that this was the record that you discovered them on. Um, was it a matter of, like, how did you get the cassette? Like, did you just see it at a store and pick it up? Did you, you know, somebody recommend nah, it? They were just floating around the job sites. You know, we'd be out there, we'd, there'd be, you know, a bunch of guys in our twenties framing houses and stuff. And we just always have the radio going. And, and there was a real buzz around the whole thing coming out of Seattle that started in the late eighties. I mean, it was, and you know, 
pre-internet and everything, you got to remember time and place. So you literally were trading around cassettes and some about Soundgarden is they're so hard and so heavy, but there's always a groove to it. Like Flower has got a groove to it that I, I, I've heard that song a million times, probably literally a million times. And I still, when it comes out of that break and goes into that riff, it's just, man, I can't help but nod my head. It's so damn good. just yeah it, it was just life-changing it's funny too because they they weren't totally happy with that album that's why it's called ultra mega okay they weren't happy with the whole thing they didn't feel like it was 100 percent of what they were capable of so they were happy with i don't know what percentage of it but that that's where the name came from they said yeah some of it's ultra mega and some of it's okay <laughs> that's funny they're like ultra mega i mean that sets the bar high maybe we yeah. should bring it down a little bit and just say it's okay <laughs> that's funny i did not know that I didn't know that either. That's hilarious. So for those of you who uh, maybe got into Soundgarden a little bit later, going back and listening to this, what are your impressions? Um, I know it's hard to compare this to the more polished stuff that's on, you know, obviously Super Unknown and and Down on the Upside and, and whatnot. But I'm curious, um, folks who have gone back, can you hear more definitively like where Soundgarden was sort of establishing themselves as a very unique combination of this like Sabbath Zeppelin, uh, you know, seventies rock, but then also integrating other influences. Like we talked about, I, I heard some, I read some reviews that said that, you know, there's some Stooges influence on this record. Um, and I'm just curious, Johnny, like, for example, what, what, what do you hear in this record that, makes you go oh okay i can see where this is a band that can win a grammy i don't don't <laughs> i don't see it i don't hear it here like i feel this is it is ultra mega okay it, I, I still feel like there's nothing here that's extraordinary you know i feel it becomes revelatory on loud love or louder than love but i don't i don't feel it yet you know, to me, it's still very of the scene and of that moment, but there's nothing okay. remarkable about it. You see, I I disagree almost entirely. Um, when I when I was listening to it, I I found so many elements that they that they used to elevate them to mega success on that record. Um. I mean, I, but then again, I may have been—I may have been listening to the Jack and Dino remix that came out recently. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I—I'm I, hearing a lot of a lot of the elements that they would that they would bring to the top. Um, just in, in a in a more claustrophobic package, I suppose. Um, 
that's the best way I can describe it because it they're the subsequent the subsequent records like starting with Bad Motorfinger like a lot of the elements were there just in in a more in a more spacious arrangement because uh, I mean note when they when they moved to A and M the albums got significantly longer. Um, that's true. Yeah, yeah this one's only forty two minutes. Um, Louder than love is fifty three, and then they I think they get super unknown is seventy. Right. Well, then you're in the CD era. Yeah. And all hell breaks loose. Uh, um, Bad Motor Fingers fifty seven. So yeah, they did get progressively louder. I felt like listening to this. I got, especially in the in the guitar playing, um, and in the rhythm section, like bits and pieces of what musically Soundgarden would sort of perfect with bad motor finger in the sense of like, you know, when you listen, like Jay said, you listen to the riff of rusty cage and your mind just kind of warps and you get your head blown back. Um, but they were able to find Rudy, like you said, these grooves within these like sort of really interesting, you know, five four and seven eight and you know weird time signature guitar parts and and you got this amazing drummer matt cameron sort of keeping this all together and i felt like i heard the the primordial soup where this that was coming from but they hadn't quite figured out how to make the music match what cornell was able to do as a singer like they're they're either able to pull off the music, but Cornell isn't like doing something amazing on top of it, or Cornell is doing something really cool, but it's kind of over like a generic metal tritone riff that sounds like Sabbath. And it really, you know, it's it's a developmental record for them rather than this amazing breakthrough. Now I think you can hear that more on on the next record too, but definitely sound like they were still just figuring out who they were as a, as a band on this record to some success. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Jay, go ahead. No, 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 Kyle, go ahead. I was going to say it's, I mean, it's a record that's all over the place. Um, you know, you've got the Sabbath, you've got the Zeppelin, you've got the Stooges, you've got even some black flag type punk in there with circle of power. Um, you know and I mean? Some of these songs you can definitely hear, maybe even going forward and listening to some of the later songs that they put out, like Ty Cobb, Kickstand, uh, Face Pollution, you can hear definitely elements of Circle of Power. And then, you know, you've got a little bit of that sort of bluesy dirge that's um, smokestack lightning um, that comes across on, on some other material. Even I find more some of the bluesier stuff that's on down on the upside as opposed to super home. But, um, you know, I, I, I definitely wouldn't say that I enjoy this record. It's not an album that I listen to regularly. Uh, I definitely have never met anybody that said that this is the best Soundgarden album, but it's definitely showcasing where they were going to go. So. Well, and, and I would add to, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to talk about just this period in the late eighties exclusively, then I, I think it's impossible to like understate like Hiro Yamamoto in, in the role that he was playing in the music that is is not the same band uh you could, you could argue that you know in a, in, a, in a great way or you know whatever your tastes are but they are a dramatically different band uh with ben shepherd than they were with hero 
um, in many, many, many ways. Um, and, um, you know, some of the schizophrenic nature of like maybe this record um, is, I think, I think what makes this record cool is that they're so all over the place and, and he's a big part of that. And the really interesting timing and the really interesting groove thing that can happen is, is really all down to him in so many ways. Um, he's an exceedingly important part of, um, of this period. I mean, in many, many ways, the guy was not a passive along for the ride guy in this band. And in any way, shape, or form, he was very, yeah. very, very involved. So I, like the Jason Everman era. <laughs> so I have a I have a question for those of you who have actually who have actually seen them in those days. Was Cornell actually playing guitar on stage? Yeah, no. I, I figured. Uh, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen until later. Yeah, I, I, he did it during Hands All Over. The first time I saw him, he picked it up for Hands All Over. I think, I don't know, it's been 30 years ago, 31 years <laughs> ago, but I think briefly. Okay. But, but yeah. he spent most of his time in the audience. So, yeah, yeah you couldn't. Yeah, because it, it, I, I had the feeling that all of the guitar work was all Kim. Um, and that could, that could have affected their, the sound of those, or those early records. Yeah, I can hear like moments like and it, it come together into full songs. So like flower, all your lies to me, those sound like, OK, I'm getting the connection, um, mood for trouble, head injury. But then there's within that all these diversions into other directions, experiments, sometimes, yeah, way too Sabbathy and dirgy. Um, so it's, to me, it's just not as consistent as what would come later. I mean, after that, you know, all the records, even though some are too long or go in places that are, you know, maybe more commercial, they're solid, consistent. Like they know what they're trying to do with the full record. This is the, the one where it's a little, uh, yeah, like we mentioned, it, it takes left and right turns and goes in f- further off the script than, than the ones that precede it. But you can definitely hear some of the, like I even hear the, something like spoon man to me, I can hear in flower, you know, just the way that riff sounds and like the way it's constructed. It's like, Oh yeah, I, I can see how we get from that song to the song or even like uh, head injury. I can hear where you get from head injury to rusty cage. I think the bluesy stuff is interesting. In fact, like to me, Smokestack Lightning almost sounded like a, a Hendrix vibe. Like it has a weird psychedelic bluesy thing going on and a riff that um, I could definitely hear maybe like a little nod to to doing something that's a little Hendrix-like. 
Well, that whole experimental thing just lent to the excitement around that band. And they were super mysterious, too, because exactly. you would just get pictures of them. They got this Japanese bass player, this lead guitarist that looks East Indian, this guy that looks like he should be the face man for a hair band is the lead singer, but with all these crazy, this crazy voice and these crazy lyrics. And then I think it was, it, it's on the ultra mega where it's got the songs six, six, five beyond the wheel. And then six, six, seven, it's like, nah, do the math. Oh, six, six, six is somewhere in the middle there. So they had all this mystery to them too, that, that fed into the whole mystique of it. We used to listen, we would listen to those albums over and over and try to analyze them and break them down and see what, you know, Probably, probably more than they had ever intended us to. <laughs> it was really <laughs> used to pour over the jacket covers for hours, just trying to figure this band out. Music was uh, fun in that way before the internet. You could it just, was. you could just oh, like, create yes. your own little world of what it all meant. Yeah, I, I miss that <laughs> mystique. Always thought that it was cool that a song like "Incessant Mace" got it kind of got rediscovered later. Um, even in their like live their live sets when they get back together and start to they start to tour there before Chris's passing that that was a song that would sort of regularly show up in in sets uh, was awesome like it was always like wow like reaching really far back and then that's kind of a, just a wacky song anyway but I I just thought it was cool that that they clearly had that song had kind of resonated with them in looking back and they sort of had kind of rescued it and brought it out and, and had been playing it a lot. I, I always thought that was cool. Just as far as like this record is concerned, it was one of the songs that survived. So let's, uh, let's move on to the second album that they released in the eighties, the 1989 September of 89 release louder than love. Um, this was released. This is their major label, I guess you'd say uh, debut on AM Records. It was produced by uh, Terry Date, who is a well known um, engineer. Uh, prior to this record, he had worked with Metal Church, Filth Angel, Sir Mix a Lot, uh, The Accused, and um, Dream Theater. So, what's interesting is okay, well, I mean, Sir Mix a Lot's the outlier there, but I read some quotes from uh you know like kim thayall and stuff and they were like well we're not trying to do metal uh or cornell said uh the band sound is enough for anyone into speed or heavy rock neo metal maybe which i think is interesting because of the producer that they decided to work with you know metal producer um and um it was recorded uh in seattle uh, over the span of about two months, which uh, I'm always amazed when bands like this get that done so quickly, but it uh, was slapped with a uh, parental advisory sticker comp uh, totally due to the song Big Dumb Sex, which was uh, uh, a, a um, we're trying to remember where uh, I think it was Cornell who said that was basically they were trying to parody it's, glam yep. bands. Yep. It's a parody song, yep. Mm -hmm. Satire on, on sex metal, I guess. Yep. Yep, the, the, it was a total like piss take on hair metal. So when I when I bought that CD, they had this very self-conscious sticker on the front of it that said developing artist series. So in other words, at some point, they're going to start playing screechy leads and Cornell is going to tease his hair and put on 
you know, spandex or something. It's like, don't, don't worry guys, we'll get them there someday. It was, I've, I've tried to find that online and I haven't been able, but I just distinctly remember this whole, cause I took the, the CD to friends of mine that we were into and I go, check this out, developing artist series. What are they, were they, why are you being all self-conscious about this? Uh, so interesting about that song, it's included on the spaghetti incident by Guns N' Roses as a medley um, with T-Rex's Buick McCain. I don't know why. That's a, that's very odd. Um, and one other bit of uh, arcane trivia. Kirk Hammett said that after he listened to this album, he wrote the riff to Enter Sandman. So we have him. We have this album to thank for that. Uh, so let's get in. Talk, talk to this record a little bit. I listening to this personally is when I, when it clicked for me, like now I hear where bad motor finger comes from. Like this is the bridge album where the early stuff that sounds sort of un underdeveloped and they're still raw and they're still figuring things out. This is the record where I go, Oh, okay. I see where this, this riff is coming, you know, is I see where they're using weird time signatures like on, um, I awake that jumps around different, all different time signatures in that song. Um, get on the snake has a weird time signature. It's like nine, four or something like that. Uh, so I completely hear all the bits and pieces that are going into what I would consider like their, you know, the, the album that first connects with me and I want to go back to over and over again. So did you guys have a similar experience going back and listening to this? There was a little bit of backlash when it came out amongst the hardcore saying they'd gone too mainstream, um, <laughs> you know, but that's just, you know, then the same thing happened when Bad Motorfinger came out. They go, oh, they went totally mainstream now, dude. I, you know, I had friends just like, I'm never going to listen to him again, but you'd, you'd hear him in their car. <laughs> that's crazy. Just wait till you hear burden in my hand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That, that's um, yeah. The first time I saw them, they were touring in support of Louder Than Love. And that Ugly Truth is one of the best songs ever written. That song is so good and so heavy. And it, that, that I remember listening to it the first time of getting the CD. It was brand new and everybody's excited. And they, they, what a great song to start an album off with, man. It is just kicks ass and then goes right into hands all over. It's awesome. And then Gun, right? Right after that. Yeah. That just great trilogy to start an album. And, and Ugly Truth makes me think that. Cornell has to be playing guitar more at this point because that whole intro, that song, I mean, the whole buildup in the first verse, if you don't have two guitars, it doesn't really work. Is that, is that the case? Is this where he really starts to maybe contribute more guitar wise? that point he was writing doing the majority of the writing too so 
Yeah, it seems like based on looking at the um, songwriting credits for this record, uh, it seems like a lot more of it is Cornell's territory. Like um, Hiro Yamamoto, Yamamoto is credited with, I think, three songs. Yeah. Kim Thayall, yeah. two, and the rest is is Cornell, which was not the case with the previous records. <clears throat> yeah uh I, i'm curious on what other people are thinking of this like kyle johnny <laughs> um i've i mean i've i've listened to this album many times over the years um i i love it there's songs that i listen to more often than not or more often than others sorry um i'm just kind of looking at the cd line up here so um you know hands all over is probably one of my favorite Soundgarden songs it's definitely in my top five for sure um, just the way it builds, it builds. And then you get that. Don't touch me. Um, it, it's just, it's awesome. Um, get on the snake is good. I never really enjoyed big, dumb sex for quite some time when I was younger, but then, I mean, the older I got, I understood the satire of it and how they were making fun of it. Um, you know and I mean? Maybe that was the point, you know, when I was younger, I just thought it was, it was just a stupid kind of silly song, but, uh, but now I actually think it's, it's quite clever. It's quite funny. So. You had to age up to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I definitely see where you're coming from, that this is the bridge between Ultra Mega and then Bad Motor Finger. Um, playing those three albums back to back, it's almost an entirely different experience um, from each album to the next. And you just, there's such a difference once Bad Motor Finger kicks in that it almost leaves some of this stuff behind. So, yeah. Uh, Johnny, what about you? You were not impressed with Ultra Mega Okay. Is this uh, is this leaning into your sort of more favorability zone? You hit the nail on the head that uh, this is the perfect bridge record. And uh, I feel like you're starting to really uh, establish what Soundgarden is now on this record. Um, I agree. Those first three, th- three songs are absolutely incredible. Uh, it does get a little indulgent uh, the longer it goes on, but still, it's really, everything is kind of uh, coming together. But the progression from this record to Bad Motorfinger cannot be overstated. It is absolutely incredible where they end up just two years later. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a quick turnaround for this band. Yeah. This is not a punk band, you know, cranking out 30 minute albums. These are complex songs at this point with all these time changes and, and whatnot. That's, that takes some time to put those together. Well, it was too early. Right. It would take 10 years. <laughs> it, uh, I'm going to be contrarian here. Um, I, I found, I found louder than love to be, uh, uh I found it too dirgy. Um, I mean, it, I guess, I guess with with having the bigger label, you want to kind of streamline and have some sort of sound there. But it just did. It just didn't seem to 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 click enough for me. Um, it, like the the tempos were really sludgy and, and everything else. And I hear a whole lot of Sabbath and in, in almost every song on, on this record. Um, and it, it just, it, I don't know, maybe, maybe it just, 
the the longer arrangements and stuff kind of just lost me. Um, something that they would that they would bring over to Bad Motorfinger, they like they brought everything over to Bad Motorfinger, but tightened up the arrangement, tightened up the arrangement, and and kept the song length. So so think songs breathed more. I think the songs on Louder Than Love like breathed way too much. Um, I mean, but conversely, Matt Cameron sounds amazing on it with all of the stuff that he's playing. I think that's where, that's where he really came into fruition with his playing on Louder Than Love. Interesting. I, I do agree. This is a little more sludgier. Uh, there's, it's, and, and there's some slower tracks and there's definitely like a, a heavy, like they were heavy, but they were like, you guys mentioned about like the black flag influence. Like there was a punk influence. And I feel like that gets quite a bit stripped away on this record. Where Yeah. You don't, you don't hear a whole lot of punk influence on, on that particular record. Right. No. Which is, that's what's missing, which is I why heroes out. Oh Yeah. Was he the driver of that sound? Yeah, he was done. He he. This was like even just making the record with Terry Date. He was already like, nope, we're not a metal band. We're not like we're not this. Not who we are. Um, and I don't want to be a part of it. Um, so it's all it's all kind of you again. You can really see. <laughs> it's almost like then they go be the band that he was afraid they would be. Yeah, in a certain in a certain way, uh, much to all the rest of us delight or whatever. But like he. He was out. He was out on the whole thing. Uh, sort of famously so. Yeah. Uh, yeah he, but, he, went, he, went, he went back to school, literally, right? Yeah. And he just yeah. Yeah. went back to college. Yep. Yeah. Um, I did, this record kind of broke my heart later, like growing up, uh, you know, looking back at it. Um, and I'm a, I have a musician um, by trade, too. Um, and this was like the, the cassette you had, like you kicked it around in the car. Like you, this is the one you had and like, uh, um, you know, bad motor finger came out or whatever. You got that on CD and you're real careful with it or whatever. But like, you know, this one, you like, you tossed it everywhere. You had it in your backpack. you like, it was all, <laughs> it was scrap. You like, you just had it and then you needed a new copy or whatever. Like this was the one. Um, and w- you know, I kind of had that experience, you know, going back, you know, getting a little older and listening back to it. And it kind of breaking my heart a little bit. Like it just didn't, it just doesn't quite hold up to the nostalgia of it. Um, you know, barring those amazing three first songs and, you know, some other real highlight moments. Uh, it's just, yeah, I kind of agree with, with, with most of you guys there and that it just didn't, it's just, it's, it's not the same listen uh, now, certainly as it, as it would have been then. Um, Cause boy, we were so fired up when that came out and it was, it was A&M and it was a huge deal in town and it was like, and the cover was, you know, the whole thing, you were just psyched. And so um, I think that the excitement really sort of maybe colored how you, you know, how you really thought about the music. Well, it, it was exciting that, that we were, that the bands we love were getting noticed. And then you fast forward a couple of years and you're like, oh, it's the worst thing that ever happened to us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so now, every, now everybody's wearing flannel. <laughs> well, well, and I, th- I think it's pretty funny, like, if that particular record came out in 94 and not marketed 
to alternative genres, but to metal genres, it would have it it would have been hailed as a classic. Yeah. Like it like you put you put that with with Pantera and and much heavier heavier bands that were on majors, but you know the the thought of getting airplay other than three spins on MT, on Headbangers Ball was you know a pipe dream. A record like Louder Than Love would have been perfect in that in that scenario, but it came out you know four or five years earlier. Pretty sure I'm pretty sure Terry Date produced all those other records later too. Yeah, exactly. Well, the King, the King, and the King's X records and the Pantera records is all the same. Yeah, it would fit in very nicely, I think, with those. Yeah, it it would it would have fit in really nicely in, you know, completely different marketing and that whole kind of thing. I mean, j- just the fact that they, I mean, they were the first Seattle band to sign to a major, if I'm they not were. mistaken. And yeah, they were. That was the big one. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know. The, being the first, you know, what does the major label do? It's like, okay, uh, let's let's pair him with this guy that can r- make the record cheap because Terry Date wasn't, you know, Terry Date until yeah. a few years later, and um, and they and they made this kind of kind of sludgy metal record that kind of that kind of picks up on the second half, but um. But yeah, it just seemed very out of its time. Well, and what's interesting is that they would go back to date on the on Bad Motorfinger, um, but that was with Ben Shepard on bass, right? After which, a, after a tryout with, yeah, I'm I was going to say with a, a tryout with Jason Everman on on tour for Louder Than Love. Yeah, uh, which didn't work out. Don't forget the Forrest Gump of the Seattle scene. Jason Everbeck. He was in Nevada. <laughs> he was in Soundgarden. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. Uh, um, yeah, he went yeah. off to be. A, he's like a. He's like an Army Ranger. He went into the. Yeah, he went the, the Army. End of, yeah, yeah. He's, the, he's a badass. There's a there's a long profile on um or in the New York Times on him. Yeah, they, like from like five years ago or something. Uh, yeah, interesting yeah. dude. Um, well, you see, when they when Ben Shepard was brought into the band, the 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 songwriting got tighter. I mean, they, they kept the arrangements, but they 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 made the they made the hooks tighter. So hence, you would have something like Rusty Cage and Outshined, where where the, where the music actually like seemed to move forward a little faster, even if the tempos didn't change. It was funny though. The narrative in town was that they had to dumb it down for him to be in the band, um, which explained the shorter songs and, and some of the things that people sort of conveniently pointed to, uh, his, the perception that he was limited, uh, a limited player compared to everybody else in the band, um, didn't, didn't turn out to be the case, but that was the, that was the narrative as it was happening was that like, how are they going to play with that guy? That guy can play four notes. (laughs) Um, Was Soundgarden, was Soundgarden his first band? No, he like he was really young. Like he was, yeah. he was like a yeah. generation younger. So he had he had been around, but he was like he was famous for being like uh, like the number one Soundgarden fan. Like he was at all the shows. He was like again, so like little club kid uh, who actually really tall little club kid. But 
Um, and so that was sort of how he was known is like, well, he probably knows every song and everything. So that's probably pretty easy. Well, the, well, also, also keep in mind between Letter Than Love and Bad Motorfinger, they were nominated for a Grammy, um, and and that got them a that got them a lot of attention just in the industry alone. I, I mean, it it probably got them got the hands all over videos spun on MTV a couple of times, you know, after the fact. And A and M was like, "All right, we need we're, we're going to need something that we could sell a lot easier." And you'd have this new bass player, and he and the songs he's contributing are tighter, and and it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, so um, we need hits, man. <laughs> I'd also mention about regarding Ben Shepard. He was pretty young, um, and the reason why he was not brought in instead of you know jason everman came in is that he just didn't know the songs yet no, um that's why jason everman was brought in but one of the things they credited him with was alternate tunings which they had only used basically drop d uh prior to this and he started writing um riffs with alternate tunings in mind so he has like he co-wrote Jesus Christ pose slaves and bulldozers. And then later the day I tried to live and my wave and pretty noose, which all feature some sort of alternate tunings. Um, hmm. Well, so although he was younger, he did have some musicality. Well, he, uh, was, he, was, a, in, he was a guitar player. Uh, gotcha. Not a bass player. Yeah. Fact, yeah. He's, he's a guitar player by nature. Yeah. And he had, he had sort of famously, uh, right at that same time, uh, the Nirvana guys had asked him. He he literally tried out for both bands, uh, seemingly at right at the same time, uh, right? As a to to be a guitar player, uh, obviously for because he was friends with Chad Channing, who was in uh, obviously Nirvana for a period. So that's how that's that's how that happened. So here's the question I'll ask because we we're at our hour mark. Um, Obviously, people now know Siren Garden primarily because of their 90s output, because of the big singles um, from Super Unknown and Bad Motor Finger and Down on the Upside. Um, if you were going to recommend going back to listen to some early Soundgarden, what would be what would you suggest that they go listen to? Um, a, a curious Soundgarden neophyte might say where would where would you direct them i'll go around and ask everybody johnny what would be the one that you'd say hey this one's not bad i, I would suggest you get you get a good taste i don't know to me it's not it's not going to be a record it's more like it's songs you know like for me it's um okay to say or hunted down uh hands all over so for me it's just it's moments in time it's particular highlights more so than um a full run through of a, of a record. Okay. Kyle, what would you suggest a, a Soundgarden, a uh, young Soundgarden fan at their school of rock? What would you, what would, what, what should they listen to? Uh, I would definitely jump on with Johnny and say that, you know, uh, it, it'd be a mix. I would make somebody a mix for sure. Um, but I mean, if you're, I mean, to answer your question, if I was to narrow it down to a, a straight up album, I would definitely say louder than love is, is where you want to start. Where you okay. 
and then work your way back. Gotcha. Phil? I will, I, I will have to say ultra mega. Okay. Um, mostly because it, it, a lot of the elements that were, that are in the successful singles are there on that, on that record, even if the band themselves aren't terribly fond of it. Um, I mean, I could, I could go through the majority of that track listing on that album and then say, Oh, okay. Well, you know, you know, incessant it is very, could be very reminiscent of 4th of July on sort super unknown. Um, it, I mean, that was just the, that was the first example that came to mind. Gotcha. Um, but a, a lot of the, a lot of the elements that, that, Soundgarden ultimately displayed on the albums that everybody knows are there on Ultra Mega OK. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, like all the influences are there. And, and, and Matt Cameron at that point was, was really starting to come into his own. Not necessarily that present on, on Screaming Life and Fop, but definitely you could you could hear his personality on that record developing yep rudy what do you say that's it's impossible because they just changed so much and you know sean hit it right on the head when when hero left the band and that that was what he said on his way out the door is like we're turning into everything i didn't want us he had more of a punk rock ethic there's so much change from album to album it would be really hard i'd be i'd agree with Johnny, maybe just pick out some individual songs for somebody to listen to or something. But, you know, as it progresses and you get into their, to their radio hits and stuff, uh, as I commented on the Patreon page, I don't know why Black Hole Sun was a huge hit. This song is awful. And it just, you know, and the fact that so many people know Soundgarden is like, oh yeah, Black Hole Sun is, uh, it's like, you know, a friend yeah. of my band's radio head. Thanks, Steve. Every- <laughs> no, so. I yeah, I I did I don't understand why you know why Black Hole Sun became almost a standard, it's, a, yeah. a modern standard when there are so there are so many other songs on that particular record alone. Fourth of July being one of them that is so much better. Yeah. <laughs> and some of their hardest songs. I mean, Pretty Noose is one of the hardest songs. I mean, that's got a beat to that. That song kicks kicks ass, but yeah, I have no idea yeah. why. So yeah, it would be it would be hard to tell somebody to land on a particular album because it's so they they change so rapidly and so much over the years. It's it's really quite an arc. Gotcha. I mean, it- Sean. Yeah, I, I, I was gonna say I I could probably whittle it down to one song. Um, if you just needed if you were just trying to explain like this, this period, um, I just, I'd give somebody flower. Um, just listen to flower and, yeah. and you probably get most of what you, you might need to get out of the, out of all of it, just kind of encapsulated in the one song, um, you know, beyond maybe the, the yeah, the first, first three songs on, uh, louder than love. But, um, I think that song is, a real standout for me of the period. Yeah. Flower is, I, I, again, it's probably, I think I looked at my phone the other day and I think it's my second most played song in my entire, in my phone. And it just, it never gets old. It, it's just a perfect song. 
That's uh features uh Kim Thale blowing on his strings. Yep. A lot of people don't know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he did. Actually, actually, saw, actually saw them try to recreate that in concert one time. It was hilarious. <laughs> well, I, I read that, and is it literally him blowing on the string across the sixth string? Yeah. Yeah. Musician. So yeah. I, I thought maybe that was like a term that they used. No, no. Nope. He's like, nope. like, blowing, blowing across down. the strings. Yep. Wow. Newfound respect for that song now. <laughs> I, I'm curious what guitar would pick that up. I mean, I guess it's picking up the vibration. I've seen somebody sing into their uh, JS2, uh, sing into their uh, pickup on a like an, a, an odd 70s Telecaster uh, that had a... Yeah, I've seen that happen too. Like a mic in... The, what was that, Jay? Like a... Old, old guitars used to have like... Um, pickups were different. So they operated more like microphones. So you could actually like sing into them. They had a microphonic design so yeah it was a guitar that had an old style mic pickup in it that you could actually vocalize into steve right. albini does it that does not surprise me at all johnny <laughs> shellac <laughs> well gentlemen thank you for spending some of your wednesday evening helping us uh, go through the 80s life of soundgarden uh this was really cool i'm i had never spent as much time uh i as with soundgarden's early stuff as i have over the past week so it was really cool to hear all this and um and get all your feedback and thoughts on this because uh i think when it's all said and done i mean i think this is going to be these are going to go down as one of the great american hard rock bands of all time so and uh I'm glad we got to talk about them. I, I do look forward to talking about Dinosaur Jr.'s um, 80s output someday because there is some wild stuff in there sure <laughs> that well, we're going to struggle with. There's a there's a reason why I, on the poll, I chose Dino Jr. I went into a one of my lengthy explanations and <laughs> <laughs> that you all love eye roll so much. Um, but it, I mean, I, I'm, I am glad this, this, I'm glad they turned to Soundgarden. So. Right. I feel <laughs> not, like this was more manageable for the first time out. Right. Let's start yeah. easy. Not, right. Not, exactly. Not complaining, not complaining. We don't need to start with seven albums. We we can start with two albums and then work our way up. We got to build up some some uh, calluses on this. Uh. <laughs> well, you could, you, we could do three more hours on Soundgarden. I mean, we haven't even got into yeah. when I saw them in the late '90s and they couldn't stand each other anymore, and Chris couldn't hold a note, and it was just those were some brutal shows. And then for them to come back, I was doing the math. Last time I saw them live was ten years ago this year. I can't believe it, but man, they were back, and it was so good to see them. Chris was just ripping yeah, it, it was, they were I back that like they were in the early 90s yeah i was quite surprised like he suddenly was able to hit those super high notes again and all of that stuff like hearing him sing black rain which is all falsetto yep. like hearing him be able to sing that again was really really inspiring <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a huge, it's a huge loss. I mean, he was always, a, uh, yeah, I, I, I saw much they were, um, 
they were opening for a Danzig of, of all people. And it was one of those weird mixed shows with a weird mixed crowd. And Chris was threatening to use the microphone stand to regulate things. It was just, yeah, there's, there's some real weirdness we could cover in some later episodes. <laughs> um, I need to, to thank some of the folks that commented, uh, obviously a lot of you uh, commented, but for the folks that are not on the podcast, uh, like Scott Hallgren, who said, uh, Soundgarden's one of my favorite bands, but like a lot of Soundgarden fans, I'll be managing a Little League game at the time. So I'll just say Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, dust off my hands and consider it a job well done. Uh, <laughs> Richard Waterman. Little League game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Richard Waterman, Gavin, Ian McIver, Jeremy Amen, David Gorgos, Tara McCook, Willie Dillon, Eric Peterson, uh, Steve Muzinski, Darren Leach. Thank you all for commenting both on uh, the Soundgarden uh, post as well as the uh, roundtable vote page. Every month we have a roundtable that our folks over at Patreon vote on. And I'd like to uh, remind you, you can uh, sign up for Patreon uh, by going to dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. It's also where you can check out our weekly box newsletter, which is delivered to your email inbox covering new releases, music, books, uh, movies related to our coverage of 80s and 90s music. You can sign up at digmeoutpodcast.com. It's also where you can suggest a record by going to the album suggestion link, drop it in there, and it makes it into one of our very contentious polls about whether or not gold records should be included and people can get into arguments about that. And lastly, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us some positive feedback at Apple Podcasts. We are jumping the charts, by the way, in Turkey. We got notice <laughs> top 50 podcast in Turkey for music commentary, a uh, subset of the main list. So, but the Turks love us, so uh, we're going to head to uh, Turkey soon and do a live broadcast. Jay and I are looking forward to that. I'm sure that they will welcome us with open arms. If they have uh, any Turkish rock, we should uh, know about it. Turkish 90s alternative rock. <laughs> we haven't covered hopper. that yet. We have that, that covered. That would be awesome. That yet. 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 Uh, thanks to Johnny, Kyle, Sean, Phil, Rudy for joining us. Uh, that's it. I, I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for JM Tim, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Whoa.